assuming he had his reasonings, and I'm assuming he, he, he had a motive for doing so, but, but Paul lets him go, and, and he decides to abandon. Later on, Acts, Acts chapter 15, you have in your notes, uh, Paul's going to describe that as a, as a source of annoyance between Paul and Barnabas as, as well. So there's, there's a conflict, but here's, here's, here's a question I have for you, and, and I want you to think two ways today, okay? And this is what I tell my students on Sunday morning. What does it mean and why is this important to me? Okay, so one is context. The other one is practice. So the question that I have for you as we start to think about this text right now is, why is Luke describing, obviously this happened, but why is Luke describing, or why would it be beneficial or important for Paul and his companions to actually go to the synagogue once they arrive to the city of Antioch? As a, as a foreigner, as a guy who grew up overseas, when I want to find something common, I go to the place where I have common, common things, right? So if I want to buy, I want to buy a, a Brazilian soda, I don't go to Walmart, right? I, I want to, I'll go to a place that has what, I, what I'm looking for. And so, so Paul, right off the bat, he's going he's gonna to level the playing field and he's going to say, hey, we're going to go here because here's what we're going to find. We're going to find Jews who are worshiping the true Messiah. We're going to find Gentiles who actually are God-fearing. We're going to find some common things between where we come from and where perhaps they came from. So Paul is actually beginning to level the field, and he's saying, hey, we're all together. If you notice, if you travel overseas and you met, it, you met, you met an American overseas, automatically you have common things that you share, right? Even though one person is from Pennsylvania and the other one is from California, you have common things, you have the language, you have the culture, you have things that you grew up watching. And this is, I think, what Paul is, Paul is doing. He's going to the people where they have commonalities. They have something that's going on in there. And so Paul begins to address them. In verse 16, he just opened. He says, men of Israel, and you Gentiles who fear God, listen. He's going to address both of them. He's not going to separate them. You are more important than the other. He's going to say, we're all together here. Now, there's a few things here I want to show it to you, and you have in your notes. First, God is actually the subject of all the actions in these, in these verses. Now, I went through this yesterday, and this is just an exercise you can do at home. But if you highlight from verses 17 all the way down to verses um, 22, you will find 11. Now, listen to this. You will find 11 mentions of the words, of the pronouns he, or the word God, or the pronoun I. All of them referring to God. So God, in just a few verses, becomes the subject of all the actions here. Uh, you have that in your notes. Number two, God continually provides to care for his people. What Paul is saying is not only God has a track record, that God is the one doing the actions, but God is actually providing for his people. All the way along, he provided them uh, the selection of Israel. He selected Israel as a nation. He, he, he delivered them from Egypt. And then he says, uh, he took them to the wilderness, and he took care of them in there. The text even says he put up with them, right? And we'll, we'll go into details in just a second. He, he says he, the conquest of, uh, conquest of Canaan was actually part of God's process in here. So God's providing all those things. He's, he provides the rulers, not only the judges, but the kings. And once again, I think as a, as a practical application, God is the good father, isn't he? In the midst of their sin, God is continually to pursue them because he has to keep his word. Verse 18, right here, once again, let me read it to you. It says this, for a period of about 40 years, he put 
up with them in the wilderness. I, I feel like I, sometimes I have to put up with my kids and it's like for a few seconds. <laughs> and that's probably because I'm not very patient at that moment. Can you imagine 40 years? Not only one person, but maybe two million of them. And once again, it goes back to Numbers and Deuteronomy, where with Deuteronomy chapter 1, you have in your notes, the text says that God carried them through. Literally, God put them on his back. Verse 20, Paul is going to summarize Israel's governmental eras, and he's talking about the judges and the kings in here. And so there is one thing that I want to mention here. When it talks about 450 years, um, we know that 400 of those were, where were the Israelites? They were in Egypt. 40 years they were where? Okay, wilderness. And then there's 10 years here, and the text doesn't really say what that was. But that's probably... the conquest of what took them to settle into the land. All right, so there's a period of 450 years here that's taking place. And, um, and listen, look at verse 22. Paul's going to actually going to use some things here. And after removing, after removing him, God raised up David, their king. So he removes Saul. He raises up David and the son of Jesse to be a man after my heart who will accomplish everything I want him to do. Now, Paul's going to employ a few things right here from the Old Testament. You have in your notes Psalm 89, 20, 1 Samuel 13, Isaiah 44, all those things speaking about David. And the term here to raise becomes a word that's going to later on be a, a, a playful word with verse 30, which says, and I'm going to read to you right now. We'll go through it later again. But look at verse 30. It says, but God has raised him from the dead. Not only he raised a son, but he's going to raise his son from the dead. And so Paul's using this wordplay here to make a connection between all the things that happened here in the Old Testament, all the things that will happen to Jesus as a fulfillment of the things that have been spoken before. Now, remember, we just talked about God being the subject of all the actions here. And God is doing that. And Paul is making it very clear that God is the one that's in control. Now, look, look with me at verse 23 to 31. This is where we see God's deliverance. Yeah, he continually provided for his people. He extended unbelievable grace to his people. That's an application to us. But then he's going to say, we're going to see God's deliverance through his son. All right? And he's going to mention a very important character here. Now, he's talking about a few things. He's talking about the kings, the judges, Saul, David. And now he's going to go to a very important man here. Uh, look at your notes, verse 23. There, there's a term that's used here. That's the term Savior. From the descendants of this man, God brought to Israel a Savior. Now, this is a very powerful term, and it talks about here. It only appears here in Acts chapter 5, verse 31. But in the Old Testament, this term was a common description of God, right? Because look what we've seen so far. God has delivered them. Egypt, wilderness, the conquest, the rulers, the judges, King Saul, King David, and we just read that this is all for the fulfillment of what he has spoken. So there's going to have to come to a place where they're going to understand this is what God wants to do. This is, he has been doing this all along. So 
The term here just highlights Jesus' role as a deliverer. Once again, it goes back to the fulfillment. God has promised, therefore, for him to be God and to prove that he's God, he has to keep his word, and he has to keep his word 100% of the time. Because if God breaks one out of the many promises he's made, he's not God anymore. Verse 24 and 25 brings the, 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 the prophet, John the Baptist, into the scene, which once again, I think Paul is saying, listen, it was coming all along and now it's here. It's like when you go, I was in a Christian school and, and you go in and you, you have a, a Christian band coming into play, right? And they bring like seven other bands and you're, you're just there waiting for the main thing to show up, right? And now, now you've... You know there are seven bands there, and, and this one is the sixth one, and now you know the expectation is the next one. That's it. That's why I came here for it. And so Paul's going to highlight all those things. He's going to say, now, listen, there's no more expectation. It's been sent to us, and we're going to look into that. But look at verse 24 and 25. It says here, the description of John the Baptist in Paul's sermon is extremely important, and we know that because, ta-da, the light is there. Now it's, he's here. This is it. There's, there's no more prophet coming after him. He's used by Paul to describe the idea of finishing the course, which expresses John running ahead of, of, uh, to herald Jesus' coming. And that's Fitzmaier right there. That's in the commentary. Both his role as a forerunner and John's feeling of unworthiness to perform even the most menial task of a slave, which is to, to untie somebody else's shoe, that shows or indicates that Jesus, not John, is the center of God's glory. And what Paul is doing is he's doing what John did in himself. He said, I am not him. And Paul's making it very clear. Then once again, verse 26, and that's the key word that I just mentioned to you, the fulfillment. Look at this. Brothers, descendants of Abraham's family, and those Gentile among you, once again, he's not ignoring one group or making one group more important than the other. He's putting them together, saying, saying that salvation has already come. But he says, the message of this salvation has been sent to us. It's already done. It's a fulfillment. Once again, it's, it's, it's done. Now, I want to give you some things you don't have on your notes. And you can jot them down if you want to or not. But here's what Paul is doing. He pointed out that all, all the events up to this point have been fulfilled in the Old Testament. We just talked about that. Look at the predictions in verse 27 and 29. Verse 27, it says this, For the people who live in Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him, and they fulfilled the sayings of the prophets that are ready every Saturday by condemning him. Look at verse 29. When they had accomplished everything that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and placed him on the tomb. This is done. Everything in the past. This kind of reminds me of the suffering Messiah of Isaiah chapter 53. Now, here's the second thing. They found no basis for his death. This is what Paul is arguing for. He was innocent. Third, and this is fascinating, look at verse 30. And if you have your Bible open, you might want to highlight those first two words in there. But God. So Paul's going to stress that God raised him from the dead. And God had to intervene. He had to actually act on behalf of his people. And then Paul highlights that the apostles were personal witness of his resurrection. 
that they spend time with Jesus in verse 31. Now, this is important because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you, you're very familiar with this text, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 2 or 3 to 5, Paul says this, and I'm going to read it to you just now. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5, he says this, For I pass on to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried. Look at all the past tense verbs here. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, according to what has been promised, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500. You see, this is all done. Jesus has been sent to us, and that's what Paul is highlighting here. And that's why in verse 30 he says that the Jewish leaders, they begin to act. They begin to act in, in opposition in verse 31. And for many days he appeared to those who had many, um, for many days he appeared to those who had accompanied him from Galilee to Jerusalem. These are now the, his witness to his people. And we proclaim to you the good news about the promise to our ancestors. Now, there's a call, and I think this is what God does, and that's the beauty of God's deliverance. He not only brings John into the storyline, he not only says that he's going to act on behalf of his people, which he has already done throughout history, but now there's going to be a response that's going to be required. As I, as I think about response, and you can think about your own life, if you're married, that, that's probably part of the process. But when you're married, you have to respond to certain ways to your spouse, right? You, you have the responsibility as a man to actually lead your family. If you have kids, you have to raise them. You have to always, to, you have to respond to the situation. God is presenting us with truth. And when truth is presented, there is always a response that's required. And Paul is going to do the same thing. And that's why the gospel presentation is so significant. Because you realize from the beginning here, when Paul goes all the way to Egypt and talks about their history, he's talking about all the things that they failed in, all the wrongs and the sins that had, they, they left behind and all the things that God was doing up to this point where God is going to bring salvation to them. And so there is a response to God's people. Now, here, here's some things that I want to show to you just, just really quickly. So Paul is going to use three main Old Testament texts here. And I'm going to make a little, a little bit of a grid here. Um, he's going to use Psalm 2. He's going to use Isaiah 55. And he's going to use Psalm uh, 16. Verses 26 through 33, 34, and 35 on. But there's a few things when he uses this combination of, ver of verses here. I'll go on this side because of the mic. When Paul uses a combination of what he's trying to prove here in his argument, and he uses those Old Testament texts, once again, he goes back to here. He's trying to show them there's a fulfillment here. But what he does is he shows three things, I think, about Jesus when it comes to what's going on in the text. I'm going to go through them really quickly. You have some things on your note, but you don't have this. First one, when, when, when he cites Psalms uh, 2, 6 through 9, he, he's trying to predict that God will actually honor 
Jesus. All right? There's a prediction of honor in here because Psalm 2.7 says, the king says, I will announce the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. This, is, this, day, this very day I have become your father. There's, there's, a, there's a position of honor here. Now, second one is Psalm uh, Isaiah 55. In Isaiah 50, 55, I think God is actually will fulfill uh, in the Messiah the promises given to David. So he's talking about there's, there's promises that were fulfilled here. And look at what verse Isaiah 55 says. It says, pay attention and come to me. Listen so you can live. Then I will make you an unconditional covenantal promise to you just like the reliable covenantal promises I made to David. See, he's passing it on. It's been fulfilled in Jesus, but it was given to David. And now, once again, the importance of the, the Davidic covenant and the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, would come through the Davidic line. And the last one is found in uh, Psalm 16, which says this, You will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful followers to see the pit. Now, this is the promise of no decay, which means that you will not abandon me in there, which means that he will die. And so there's a promise here in your notes, and you see in there that there's a, there's a, there's a promise, a prediction of resurrection here, that God is actually going to allow his son to die, but he will not be there, which means that he's not going to decay, which means that he has to be resurrected. He has to bring him back to life. Now, deliverance here, when it talks about verse 38 and 39, is, is actually uh, in terms of forgiveness and justification. And you have some, some uh, verses in there, and I'm not going to go into details of those. You can look them up later. But the, pro the point here is that Paul is going to um, make a declaration that the forgiveness of sin is, the only is only found in believing in Jesus. There's no other justification for sins or forgiveness of sins. There's no other name under heaven that can provide those things, right? Acts chapter 4, verse 12. So Paul is going to highlight that the law was inadequate. Now, here's the question. Why, why was the law not, or not completely uh, able to provide to us what we needed or to the Jews what they needed? So this morning I was driving here, actually, and uh, I noticed everybody was driving really slow because there was a lot of, the, the, the fog was just, like you couldn't see very far. It made me think, this is kind of what the law provided. The law provided enough for them so they could see their own reality in light of how sinful they were before a holy God, right? But the law wasn't able to get them out of that place in terms of giving them salvation. And that's why they sacrificed animals. They provided, they had to provide for their own things. The law was just a light that reflected actually how, how bad things were around them, but didn't give them freedom. All right, let's, let's move along here. In verse 41, he's going to quote, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. And, and this is really interesting because listen to what Habakkuk says. He says, look at the nations and pay attention. You will be shocked and amazed, for I will do something in your lifetime that you will not believe, even though you are forewarned. Now, Habakkuk actually is talking about punishment to the leadership of the nation of Israel. Remember, Judah has, is going to be cap, taken cap, captive and he's saying, you haven't done your part. A commentator, his name is Neil, he says, it's parallel with the positive theme of the preparation of, for the coming of, of Christ through 
Abraham, Moses, Samuel, David, and John the Baptist, he, Paul, listen to this, has interwoven an admonitory reminder to those who have failed to recognize the divine plan and purpose. And who are they? Look, listen to what he says. The Canaanites, Saul, the Jerusalem Jews, and Pilate, which is all the people that have judged and condemned Jesus in this process, have not believed him. Then he says this, now he presents the dispersion Jews with a similar challenge to accept or refuse. Once again, going back to the response that we have to provide to accept or refuse the gospel message. And because of that, we come to our last part. Once again, nothing shall halt the progress of the gospel, even with all the difficulties. And then we realize God, well, I don't have a slide for that. So let me go back here. Look at the last thing, the response for the people, verses 42 to 45. Uh, let me make some comments here because this is, this is just the, the idea of like how, how the people responded. And the, pretty much there's two responses here. One of them was jealousy, right? And who's, who, who's part of that? The Jew. The people that God created, all those things we talked about, all the history, all, all the promises that led to that point where Messiah was going to come. There's jealousy. But do you, see, do you see the response from Paul? Look at verse 20, uh, 46 again. But Paul and Barnabas replied. How did they reply? Boldly, courageously. When I was in Cedarville, my, my graduation speaker was, was Chuck Colson. I don't remember his speech. But I remember the two words he told us never, never to forget. One is truth. You need to be standing on truth. And he says, because of the culture you live in, he says, you need to have courage. And when I read this text, this is exactly what the apostles are doing. They, they're standing on the truth, they're presenting the truth, but they're doing this with courage because it wasn't an easy task. And we, we see that. And so verse 46 and 47, he's going to cite Isaiah 49 right there. And so Paul's going to highlight his calling and the role uh, that he's, he's playing right now as a servant of the Lord and then he moves on, and this is the, the purpose slash the, 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 the direction in which the ministry is going. 47, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. What he has commanded us, I have appointed you to be a light to the Gentiles, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Once again, remember, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the utmost parts of the world, this is it. They're, they're obeying. When the Gentiles heard this, listen, this is the other reaction. When they heard this, they began to rejoice. So there is sadness in one side, and there is jealousy in one side, and there is rejoicing on the other. And no, you know what? If you are here today and you believe in Jesus, you are on the rejoicing side. So don't ever try to go back to that side. Because even though we might come from different backgrounds, we might drive to different cars, we dress differently, we all have the same Savior. And that's what makes us a family, Romans 12. That's what makes us the body of Christ. And once again, they leave the city because there are some arguments and some things that should not be taking place. Now, there isn't a statement here. 80% of the God-fearing believers in that part of the, in that time on, on, on that area were about women. This is nothing new. Nothing has changed. When I, when I went back to be a missionary in Brazil, I went through the agency I was working with. I went through some training in there, and, I, and I, I got into the room, and there were 20 singles in there. And out of the 20, 19 of them were women. 
And nothing has changed. But the leaders ended up using those God-fearing believers to be able to cause some turmoil. Now, I want to give you some application just really quickly. First of all, I think we see that godly, godly leaders hand over leadership. Now, Paul could have fought. He could have stayed there for longer. He could have caused confusion. But he's just saying, hey, we're leaving. We're going to Icon- Iconian. And I think this is, this is an approach that our church has tried to take. We're not trying to suffocate everything from everybody. We're, you have the responsibility. You lead where you are. And I think that's something we learned today. Once again, is going back to the fulfillment. God keeps his promises. Right? Numbers 23 is an example of that. God has to keep his promise. He's obligated to his promise. It's not that he wants to, but he also has to. Just like I want to keep my word when I tell my daughter I'm going to take her on a daughter, daddy-daughter date. If I don't, I'm going to break her heart, but then she's going to probably think less of me as a guy who doesn't keep his promises. But if God doesn't keep one of his promises, he's not God anymore. So he wants to and he has to. And the last one here is, despite of all the rejection, even persecution, a faithful follower of Christ will experience joy in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I said in the beginning, the circumstances in which we stand and, and, and the circumstances surrounding us should never, it will never, it might, but should never dictate your relationship with the Lord. Because as Randy Alcorn says, and I mentioned this to you before, the one who has Christ has just as much as the one who has Christ plus everything in this world. So let's pray. Father, you are good. And so we, are, we ask you, Lord, that you help us to be cheerful as your people, that you have been gracious. You could have kept just pursuing the Jews and left all the Gentiles apart, but you, in your grace, poured your love through Jesus Christ on the cross and gave us hope and, and brings us salvation. So, Father, make us a people that honor you and make us never forget. Help us never, for, never to forget the sacrifice of your son on the cross and what he has done to us. We thank you that your word moves forward. And I pray for us as a church that we would understand that you've called us to go and find our Jerusalem, our Samaria, our Judea, and our utmost parts of the world. And may you use every single man here today to accomplish that very same task. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.